Good afternoon and welcome to Keys to Running an Audit Ready IT Shop, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Tausite and Sensinet. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Health System CIO. I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first, we're going to go about 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Aaron Weissman, CISO at Mainline Health, Rob Marty, VP of Solution Engineering and Field CTO with Tausite, and Chris Logan, SVP and Chief Security Officer with Sensinet. And then we will have our Q&A. So let's jump right in. Very important topic today. Um, Aaron, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Chief Information Security Officer at Mainline Health. Inline Health is a hospital system uh, healthcare organization in the Philadelphia suburbs serving the greater Philadelphia region. Uh, I run information security. We are audited constantly, um, both by internal audit, external parties, et cetera, to meet regulatory compliance requirements. Well, that's perfect uh, for our conversation today, for sure. Rob? Hi, all. Yeah, Rob Marty. I am the uh, field CTO for TauSite. TauSite is a data security company focused on um, healthcare privacy and sensitive data in in healthcare. Right. So our our total focus is uh, finding EPHI uh, unstructured file systems that may be uh, scattered around your organization, inventorying those, and then integrating with your uh, broader. Uh, controls ecosystem to start to get uh, get control of of uh, that data that's floating around out there, that shadow PHI. Very good, Rob. Thank you. Chris? Great. Thanks for having me. Chris Logan, Senior Vice President, Chief Security Officer here at Sensinet. So Sensinet has a platform. We created a platform called RiskOps. It's a cloud-based risk network that enables the seamless and secure collaboration between healthcare delivery organizations and third-party vendors so that you can assess, monitor, mitigate the cyber risks that threaten patient safety. We also allow organizations, healthcare delivery organizations and such, to understand their enterprise risk posture by um, basically assessing themselves against common frameworks and standards like the NIST CSF, the health industry cybersecurity practices, HIPAA privacy, HIPAA security, and so forth. So collaborative risk exchange that allows organizations to truly manage their risk in one central location. Thanks for having me. All right, good. Very good. Thank you. Um, Aaron, we're going to start with you. You said you're constantly audited. How would you describe the state of oversight around health system IT security? What entities might demand to review your processes, policies, and past performance. So who's going to who's going to send you a letter or however it works? And how might that process start, such as the letter I mentioned, and what might they be looking for? Yeah, so the state of oversight around IT security uh, in health is distributed, if I'm being generous. Um, you know, we have CMS obviously enforcing uh, HIPAA privacy and security rules. Um, there's the Food and Drug Administration looking at how we use biomedical devices and also looking at the biomedical devices themselves. Um, CISA, the new uh, cybersecurity, relatively new cybersecurity 
an infrastructure security agency that, you know, also handles security oversight for critical infrastructure. And then we also have joint commission that licenses our hospitals, comes on site, make sure we're doing what we need to do. Previously, they haven't asked cybersecurity questions, but obviously, given the volume of healthcare attacks in recent years, they, they've been asking, right? And they, they want to see that we have documentation in place, uh, we're following requirements, et cetera. So the, the entities that demand to review our policies and processes really, you know, even sort of further afield of that. So uh, CMS is going to ask us for our documentation policies, et cetera, in the event that we have a reportable healthcare breach. Um, you know, EPHI being exfiltrated, et cetera. And, uh, it, but, you know, annually we have to go through a HIPAA security risk assessment, uh, where we bring in a third party vendor to look at our materials, see that we're performing, uh, you know, up to snuff with HIPAA, et cetera. Um, you know, and again, as I said, Joint Commission's also going to ask for that. We, we might even have third parties asking for that. So if we partner with other organizations to share data or, you know, as, uh, uh, health payer in some cases, et cetera, um, or health insurer, excuse me, you know, we, we might be asked there for, cause we'll be a downstream third party for materials there. Um, so a lot of different ways that's going to start and a lot of different things they're going to look for, uh, at high level. I think they're going to look at policies and processes. They're going to want to make sure that we have our security requirements in place, that we've at least met a baseline that we're checking all the boxes for HIPAA, et cetera. Um, yeah, high level overview, I think. What about OCR, Aaron? Yeah, so, you know, OCR is part of CMS, and they're the ones who, if we have a reportable healthcare breach, uh, 500 records are over, you know, are really going to come in and say, hey, you know, uh, what's going on? Why weren't you able to safeguard this information, et cetera? It's a very retrospective analysis, um, but, you know, a very valuable one to ensure that, you know, whatever happened, if it's a cybersecurity event, um, you know, that it you're at least doing the due diligence that you need to do. And it was one of those things that, unfortunately, you just couldn't control. Um, you know, what, what we've seen is for security organizations that don't have that in place, there are lawsuits, obviously, enhanced fines, et cetera. And it becomes a very costly proposition to defend against those issues. Very good. Rob, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm um, really interested. Aaron, are you um, seeing an uptick in financial auditors uh, asking cyber related uh, for cyber-related materials for certifications or actually performing those audits as well? From a financial standpoint, that's interesting. So, you know, we undergo uh, a financial audit because we're a nonprofit organization every year. Those questions have pretty much stayed uh, the same. They do a pretty thorough job. Uh, we've actually seen an uptick in questions coming from our cyber insurance company, obviously, because, you know, everybody's being attacked now, right? So it's becoming a very costly proposition to insure. And then our electronic health record provider, Epic, uh, they are, or electronic medical uh, record provider, excuse me, whatever you want to call the system, they're asking for enhanced information, you know, both to satisfy their financial reporting requirements because they're a publicly traded company, and also just to make sure that we're doing what we need to downstream of them to safeguard their infrastructure. Awesome. I'm curious too, how about the, the uptick in patient class, class action lawsuits related to um, related to cyber? Are, are these things that, that the board are starting to consider as a, an additional liability related to a cyber practice? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know that, you know, our uh, legal fund necessarily incorporates that yet. Um, I know some other organizations probably are, uh, you know, but uh, the board is absolutely asking questions about, you know, what's going to happen in the event of a ransomware attack? What is that class action lawsuit going to look like? And then as we implement new technologies, you know, there are class action lawsuits for uh, metapixel trackers, for example, right? And, you know, Google trackers, et cetera. So are these new technologies, which are ultimately helpful for the organization, ultimately helpful for the patient, also going to result in potential liability? That's amazing. Yeah, I think I think one other uh, aspect, just in terms of regulators that uh, that we deal with in the in the pharmacy world here in Oklahoma, is related um, to the FDA and their uh, their inspections, as well as uh, the FTC and their breach notification uh, provisions that are seeming to get more traction lately. So I, these are areas that uh, that we're also focusing um, and and placing attention on, just in terms of the overall regulatory environment. So, Rob, that's uh, one Aaron didn't mention, I don't believe, the FTC. So that's another one. Tell me a little bit more about that, what they're looking at. Yeah, so they've got a, a breach notification provision as well, and they are act- actively enforcing um, uh, their provisions. And I think there is some movement uh, to start to consolidate some of the the uh, enforcement related to these agencies. But today, I think the FTC is stepping up their action uh, really uh, because the CMS seems to be um, a little bit in the background on some of the breach uh, notification provisions, et cetera. And the, the, the no, not, a, not a lot uh, different from, uh, you know, the publicly traded companies, the these ideas of everyone being timely with their notifications, thorough. And uh, I, I think, the world has has had enough, at least in the U.S., of kind of these long provi- uh, notification provisions. I got breached a year ago. I mm. told CMS uh, 30 days ago. Uh, I think uh, overall the, the pressure is on to know what's happening happening in your environment, to um, quickly notify investors, regulators, um, and really to drive accountability for organizations with regard to their security posture. Chris, thoughts? So I'm just going to put an exclamation point on something real fast. There's no shortage of oversight. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's coming from every single angle. I think the biggest problem that I witnessed that I've observed is that uh, no two agencies are asking the same thing. So we're struggling as as organizations to keep up with all the oversight because we're being asked the same question four different ways, but have to provide four different responses to that same question. So there's really a lack of commonality with the organizations that are providing oversight. And when the oversight really ramps up, it's when organizations have something horrible happen to them. And the last thing you want to deal with is some regulator coming in when you're trying to fix a problem. It's This is an area that I don't want to say I'm passionate about, but it kind of pisses me off in a little bit because if you cared that much about what was going on, why didn't you come in before we had the problem? Why didn't we solve the problem before it was a problem, right? So we're, we're very reactive in this space. And you're seeing it start to ramp up in different agencies in different places across the U.S., especially with healthcare delivery organizations. I've spoken to a few folks that had breaches. I'm not even worried about the class action lawsuits that are coming their way. I'm worried about the other states now that are leaning in and asking questions because you may have patient data across a wide vath of geographical space, right? So now you have states now burdening you as well on top of everybody else. So 
it's it's becoming an overburden. And how we solve that problem is we really got to get these folks on the same page. Don't ask me 17 questions about authentication. I should be able to tell you exactly what I'm doing in that space. And that should satisfy that need because I'm the one running the program, right? I have my team set that program up so I can give you that best information. I, I see a lot of gotchas in the space and it kind of drives me a little bit crazy. And then let's take this the other side of the coin because yes, I was a healthcare CISO for many years. Now I'm on the other side of the desk. You know who else I have oversight problems with? Every single customer that we go to. <laughs> so every single customer is now asking me questions about my security programs, what I'm doing to protect their information. And they're never asking that question the same way. So now I'm being bombarded, not just by the regulatory agencies that I have to give information to. I'm being bombarded by our prospects and customers about, hey, are you doing something a certain way? And does it meet their measure? Well, if I'm meeting the measure that's been lined out according to a cybersecurity framework, isn't that good enough? When it was that not good enough for me? So it's really this weird balancing act right now. And uh, uh, definitely a question that we need to continue to uh, double click on and really start to get some some ability to start to share information more seamlessly and concurrently that satisfies all parties involved. Very good. Aaron, a couple of things um, I'd like to dig into a little more. One would be the idea of, and you had mentioned that, that you hire third parties sometimes to do auditing, right? So you're prepared for when an external entity comes in and wants to audit. So you've got that sort of two buckets. You've got the audits that we do ourselves to make sure we're in good shape. And then the audit someone from outside wants to come in and do. And then from the, I'm seeing that the external audits might be into two buckets and tell me if I'm wrong here. One would be no incident involved, sort of a, Hey, we're coming in to check up and we want to see what you have going on. And then one would be post incident, meaning you've had an incident and now we have questions to ask. Right. Is that in actuality how it goes? There are entities that come in before just to take a look and those that only come in when there's an incident. And then you have also the audits you do and the audits that are done to you. Yeah, absolutely. So like, I don't talk to CMS on a regular basis. Knock on wood, I'm not going to be talking to them anytime soon. The only time I'm really talking to them from a security standpoint is after something terrible has happened, right? And to Chris's point, absolutely don't want them here while I'm trying to also recover and fix whatever's going on and make assurances, et cetera, right? It overcomplicates the issue. Um, you know, but a lot of what we do proactively is to make sure that, you know, our technology infrastructure is up to snuff to safeguard us from attack, right? So, you know, we have internal penetration tests, external penetration tests. We do look to those administrative audits to make sure staff actually know what to do in the event of an attack, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of work that goes into making sure external entities don't need to come in on a regular basis. Um, but, you know, we do like Joint Commission, for example, just randomly audits us every three years. So, you know, we have to be prepared for those kinds of audits as well. Chris, any thoughts on that? My buckets? No, I think your buckets are accurate. I, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I love the the idea of people audit when they're intrigued or looking. I think about cyber insurance because <laughs> those audits are they can be quite hairy and they're never the same. <laughs> they're always different regardless of who you go to or what year you go through. And again, it, it's it's going to be multiple agencies. And and again, from the, the the looking at it from the other side, the outside looking in, it's those audits that I'm conducting to make sure that we're doing all the right things above board within my organization. 
is that good enough for everybody else to take on? Is that just good enough at this point in time that you'll accept those findings of the program that I've built and I've worked these controls around? So I, I think it doesn't matter if they were showing up today, tomorrow, unannounced, announced. We just have this, this divide about what's good enough these days to be audit ready and audit capable. We're doing our best. You know what I mean? We're running at a thousand miles an hour. We're running with limited resources, limited funding, just like everybody else. So we're really starting to look at what, what's the biggest risk? What's the biggest impact to our business? And that's going to be different across every organization. How do you start to demonstrate that in a way to this organization that wants to audit your books to say, hey, that's good enough. I understand. If I know what my risks are and I'm addressing those risks, that should be good enough at that point in time. You know, and I know we're going to get into this a little bit further. It's like, the compliance bingo BS card, like I have to have all these items marked off the box because somebody said so. Well, it may not add value to my organization. It may not even be a risk to my organization because I have other controls in place that satisfy that need. So having to be able to answer, you know, seven different masters in that regard, it creates this confusion across those buckets that you've already laid out. Now, Chris, you could, from what you're saying, you could have a risk that's only a risk in the sense of an audit. Right. It's not a real risk, but it's going to be part of this audit. So it's a risk in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there's technology risk out there that auditors are still looking for. I give you, you know, just off the top of my head, seamless kind of foolish examples. Right. Most of us have taken the stance that if we're providing services and they're cloud based services, we're going to be using multi-factor authentication. Right. So two factors to authenticate. Why are you still asking me about password controls? Nobody cares about password controls anymore because I have two factors that I need to use to authenticate. It doesn't matter if it's a one character password or 45 character password. I still need a device with an authenticator app on it to get into that application. It's mind numbing to me to have to answer that question. And it constantly comes up. Are you compliant with our password controls? No, because I don't need them because I use 17 <laughs> factors of authentication and a biometric measure and my firstborn child's blood at this point. I mean, right, right, right. it's amazing to me how we haven't grown in this regard to keep up with the technology controls. And we're still asking compliance questions that just don't matter. But but Rob, you know, sometimes we have to deal with the bureaucracy as it is, right? We can rage against it, but the, the like almost the definition of bureaucracy is that common sense doesn't matter. And if you if you bang up against bureaucracy, you're going to lose. Better to just comply. Anyway, your thoughts on anything that we're saying here, Rob? No, I uh, completely agree. I mean, just to expand a little bit about on the password uh, side of the house, just because it's such a, a great example. And this came out three years ago, I think, maybe longer, and said, hey, you don't need to expire passwords anymore, right? Um, uh, unless you've had a compromise. Yet, uh, we still run these cycles of... Uh, of 30, 60, 90 day password resets. We interrupt patient care. We create a bad Monday for clinicians because their password expired because we're, we haven't yet figured out one, how to uh, adopt it and two, how to satisfy the regulator in it. So instead we, we burden uh, the very people that uh, we, we are trying desperately to free up to make, uh, to, to move the technology uh, and all of these controls uh, mindsets and everything re related to this into the background and just allow us to take care of people, right? Allow our clinicians more time at the bedside. And we're, uh, we're, we're still not there. We're not, we're not accomplishing those goals be because uh, 
a lot because of this mixed regulatory state. But on top of it, it's just uh, the cycle of learning, right? Um, NIST makes a recommendation it, um, that we should change this. We've got to enculturate that all the way down to into the provider space. We have to get comfortable with it and we and, and understand the true nature of, of what NIST is telling us, what that standard, uh, what the change in that standard means um, and how, how do we actually protect our organization managing to, to uh, quantitative or qualitative risk measures. So we can have a delay or a disconnect between the best practices as identified by respected entities such as NIST so they can change what they are telling you to do, but that may not have gotten over to a regulatory agency that's doing an audit. Is that correct? So you may have a yeah. disconnect there. Right. You may have a, a control requirement that doesn't incorporate, hasn't incorporated the new guidance. You may also, so you've got that on the regulatory side. You also have it um, in the practitioner side. How do I, what do, what tools do I have to consume uh, this new guidance? What is the impact of that guidance on me and how do I actually uh, bring that, bring the, that guidance to bear in my organization? Aaron, love to bring you in here and get your thoughts about this dynamic of things perhaps changing from a best practice point of view, but not quite changing with the auditors yet. You're left in a position of either having to adopt the best practice and then have to defend your adoption of it to the entity that's looking for compliance or uh, continue to perhaps inconvenience your users unnecessarily from what I'm hearing here. Yeah, no, I think I think we're actually being pulled in three directions. And, you know, Rob's observations and, and Chris's about passwords, you know, especially are a great example of this, right? You know, we have sort of these oversight organizations that are coming out with these new best practices that we have to figure out some way of implementing in our organization, whether or not it works. We then have auditors who have certain expectations. And then, you know, we have providers who, frankly, are logging in to different PCs 60, 70, 80 times a day. And that is a serious disruption to their work, right? They're literally spending hours of their day typing in passwords, for example. You know, I, I think any changes we make, you know, we're not going to satisfy the auditors. We're not going to meet best practice and we're going to piss off our clinicians, right? Like our clinicians don't want passwords at all. So, you know, really trying to figure out the balance of all three of those. How are we compliant and how do we make sure that we're meeting the needs of our customers, right? Who in this case are our users, the clinicians who, you know, log in um, multiple, multiple, multiple times a day. And then how do we also try and drive that best practice adoption? I, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of maddening, right? Because you're, you're never satisfying anybody and, you know, you you have to drive good security despite that. Yeah, it's yeah. uh Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say to to that point of logging in that the, these providers log in so frequently um, that I actually had a provider here, a very senior provider here in Oklahoma, uh, calculate the number of hours, number of times in a day he logged in, the number of hours in a month that cost, and sent me a fifty thousand dollar bill and said, "Make this better." <laughs> Uh, right. And the, and it truly has an impact on patient care, right? If you, if you look at those hours away from the bedside, not providing care, we already have a shortage of providers, you know, and frankly, that was a great motivator for, for me and my teams to, to go find ways to, uh, shorten that impact and, and handle that, uh, that 
uh, imposition of having to log in uh, each time you you uh, you change locations in the health system to provide care, whether that's during rounding um, or um, you know just through the through the daily the typical daily aspects of of these clinicians and the, and the way they practice. And Aaron, that's probably a tough sell uh, when you're talking to your users, right? You know, it's not even a best practice per se. The best practice has changed. Like your lives should be easier, but I can't do it because we're going to be audited and they still haven't changed. That's a tough sell to, to your users, right? Yeah. And, you know, around the password space specifically, you know, we had a lot of conversations about how do we come to a compromise about this, right? You know, you can't tape passwords to you know, walls, right? You can't tape them to PCs. You can't use very simple passwords. How are we going to get you clinicians to the point where, you know, you're acting securely and you don't have this level of disruption, right? And that's where new technology comes in, right? We change how we log into PCs, how we interact with PCs. In our situation, it's tokenized authentication. Um, and that hasn't made every provider happy, but it's made a lot of providers happy and it's streamlined their workflow. So, you know, we, we try and leverage in our security office solutions that are going to improve the lives of our users as much as possible. So as we're evaluating technology, we really do think about that endpoint clinical impact and what that's going to look like. Very good. All right. Next question. What are some characteristics of an IT program that would have little reason for anxiety <laughs> if it received a letter of impending oversight? What are the trickiest areas around compliance? And are there some areas where there is sort of a disconnect between what's actually happening on the ground and what's expected, which I guess can be quite difficult? Um, and then let's, let's talk a little specifically about the third-party risk and EPHI when it comes to potential auditors. What would they be looking for in this area? Chris, let's start with you. Oh, I knew you were going to come to me. You're damn right. That's all right. So <laughs> characteristics of a security program that has little reason for anxiety, one that's not plugged in. <laughs> no internet connectivity, no third parties, just standalone PCs with nothing going on. I kid, but I don't kid at the same time. I think the characteristics of the security program that if I take a step back and I look at mine, the things that I don't have anxiety about is the things that I really control, right? So the parts of the program that I've built, my team runs, we've got management approval to conduct those types of activities, right? It's in lockstep with what the business needs. Where I get anxious is when now I have to rely on others to perform some duty, some service, some function. And that could even be within my own organization, right? <clears throat> because now there has to be a specific level of oversight from me on that side of the organization to ensure they're doing what they say they're going to do. So it, it's it's very tough to balance these two pieces of the puzzle because if you think about the the nature of what a security program is today as opposed to what it was 20 years ago, it is hyper-connected. It's truly a differentiator for your organization because it touches and impacts every aspect of the business. Because we're so digital now, because we're so consumer-facing, all these pieces have to be in play for everything to move and run as successfully as we want it to be. So, you know, the things that I, I manage, I'm extremely comfortable with. I have no problem standing by the stuff that I own. I put a flag in the ground and we've, we've done it. We've accomplished. We've landed on the moon. I think about everything else. I get a little bit of anxiety because now I need to have a program that's managing those folks, managing that process 
testing that process to ensure it's doing the function that it's supposed to do. So that continuous monitoring aspect, and then take it beyond the, the four walls of the organization. Now think about the reliance. And I know it's a bullet down here. Think about the reliance that we have as healthcare delivery organizations, and even those that are delivering services to healthcare delivery organizations. I now have to build a product or a service or run a program that is having direct reliance on somebody beyond my organization. That's how complex care delivery has become, right? Or that's how, you know, integrated it's become. It's become much more of a consumer sport at this point. So now I have to trust that those folks are doing what they say they do. And I have some oversight into that process, but it still keeps me up at night because are they truly doing what they say they do? And I'll, I'll leave it at this. Like, I believe that everybody's putting their best foot forward, right? I firmly believe that. I don't think there's anybody out there that's like, nah, screw it. I'm just not going to do my best today. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not good for bottom line revenues, definitely not good for patient care. Those two things matter, right? Regardless of whether you're an HDO or outside an HDO providing services. The reliance on the fourth and fifth parties now has become such a big point of concern and topic. And I'll give you a great example. Move IT. I'm not going to say any more about it, right? Did you know, did we know that somebody that we were relying on were using vulnerable software processes to provide that service to us, which is so critical to our business function? Probably not, right? Were we not asking the right questions? How do we get to a point where the ecosystem is running in the same direction to where I can have that level of confidence? Can I solve that problem today? I think I can. I think it's going to take a little bit more work to get everybody on board, though. So I'm going to pause there because mm, it's good I'll, stuff. I'll take all the oxygen out of the Zoom if you let me. Good, no, good <laughs> stuff. And I'm going to I'm going to ask a follow up, uh, but I'm going to put it to Aaron. But it's on what you said, Chris. So I'm yeah. going to do that little sleight of hand. Um, <laughs> you know, you talked about confidence in what's under your control and concerns about what aren't. So, Aaron, one of the things we're seeing, and this relates to sort of cyber talent shortage and all this. Um, You've got different areas here. You've got sort of the traditional third parties, different technologies uh, that people are using. Then you've got sort of the idea of of healthcare IT, you know, health system, especially security shops like yours, Aaron, leveraging out, uh, managed services is the term now, managed services, because maybe it's hard to get that person. It's hard to get that talent in-house or I can't pay them enough, or I train them up and they go. So, I want and maybe I want twenty four seven capabilities around some of this stuff. So I go with a firm that's global, and they always have eyes on this or whatever. Um, but that's a little bit that's out of your control to a certain degree, right? So um, we've got cloud stuff. You know, they've ever put in these are a little bit out of. You. So I wonder, but your thoughts around that? Um, you know, these kind of dynamics and and the risk that they imply. Yeah, I mean, it's potentially a significant risk, right? You know, but I don't think it's any more risk than, you know, having someone on staff who's going to do something nefarious or, you know, someone who inadvertently does something bad, right? And the way we address that is visibility. So it's building visibility so you can build trust with those third parties. And, you know, we do the, you know, third party risk assessments, we do architectural reviews, we do, um, you know, check-ins, at least with some of our managed service providers, et cetera, um, you know, try and validate the services that they're providing and the quality of services they're providing, you know, and it's it's really just trying to develop this trust framework all around with our managed service providers where, you know, we sort of say, okay, we think you're doing a good job because of X, Y, and Z. Do we 100% know? No, and we never will, but we're mitigating the risk to the degree we can. 
unfortunately, I feel like there's a lot of pressure to build up probably an unreasonable level of program there. You know, I think where there's a downstream breach, you know, third, fourth, fifth layer of provider, um, you know, again, there's a lot of hindsight review of, well, did you actually vet this person or group uh, appropriately? Should you have done more, et cetera? And, I, you know, there's no right way to answer that question, right? Because you made the decisions that you made. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you're going to probably miss something in the moment. Rob, any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think the antithesis of, uh, of security is complexity, uh, and the our health systems are uh, complex by their very nature. Um, they're big; they've got a lot of people, um, and all of our security plans are well are uh, are perfect until tested, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> truly, and um, you know, I agree. The the things where we have uh, visibility um the however far that visibility extends where we can have actual ground truth are the the places uh, that we have um lead uh, i would say less anxiety um and those around supply chain uh, those are you know the the idea of a software bill of materials is is a it's kind of an interesting and sexy idea to a CISO until you figure out that managing that is a, is a whole discipline in and of itself, right? What am I going to do with all that information? Now am I accountable for that uh, and for following up on that as well? I think um, the supply chain, obviously business associates are um, have come in, into the limelight for um as as major components uh, related to uh, to breach and, and the impact of of their uh, environments. So how how do we effectively get control uh, or visibility into those organizations? How can we extend some level of trust? Um, and it, I think it all boils back down to knowing what you you can't secure what you what you don't know what you don't know you have right. So the the inventory of that data, knowing that. You know, there was volumes of EPHI sitting on a move it server. How do you expose that? And how do you, in a way that um, allows the leadership team to then make plans and start to manage the real, the actual risk that's out there? Sans, you know, the regulatory pressure and the compliance checklist. Let's get to the to the to the point um, where the where these uh, vulnerabilities actually uh, have run the risk of creating a negative patient outcome or a, uh, a material impact to our business uh, or a material impact to our, our patients, clinicians, employees, et cetera. And let's let's focus where it matters. I want to talk. It seems like a good time to talk about application rationalization. When you talk about the enemy of uh good securities complexity of certainly uh, that makes sense. And I've heard that sentiment before. I think one of the main areas we see CIOs and CISOs working to do, to do that is application rationalization. We don't need six of something that does largely the same thing. Um, they're actually pushing those programs and working with the operational folks to try and get that number down. <clears throat> Rob, do you see that as uh, a really sweet spot or some low hanging fruit to, to reduce that complexity? 
I think it's it's a positive step. Um, I, I I will say that I don't I rarely see that being driven as a security initiative, though. It, security benefits from it, but it typically it's um, you know operational complexity and patient care creates challenges that have zero to do with um, cyber risk, right? Patient risk and and just overall operational efficiency. So uh, you know we we I've typically seen uh, app rationalization happening for. Uh, similar reasons just in a in a different part of the organization and or you know the financial squeezes on healthcare frankly it's a so there's a, a number of reasons why people are are taking that approach app rationalization can definitely help security um but but it all depends on who you partner with right um and so being that gives us fewer business associates and fewer technologies to uh, continually evaluate uh, for the risk that they introduce in the organization, right? Every time we patch a system or upgrade a system, we run the risk, we introduce new, net new uh, capability. We also uh, potentially expand the attack surface uh, and the amount of uh, vulnerable PHI, whether structured or unstructured, that can leak um, that we're now accountable for right and that we now need to expose and build business processes around so absolutely think it's a, a positive step for security rarely do i see it being driven uh by information security but i do see my peers jumping on on those projects and really helping to drive uh drive towards us because it definitely uh enhances our ability to uh, secure the environment Chris, do you think CISOs and health systems could or should be um, voices for moving towards uh, application rationalization and extolling the benefits of doing this where they can get the operational folks on board uh, rather than just being passive and perhaps, you know, saying, well, if they do it, great, I'm a I'm a beneficiary. No, perhaps I should be trying to drive this. Yeah, I'll say some unpopular stuff. I do this from time to time, right? <laughs> You know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna reflect on my experience going through this process. When we were going through app rationalization, it wasn't for operational benefit; it was to lower cost. I mean, just the premise of doing this exercise to take costs out of the organization brought a whole slew of additional risks with it that the business wasn't thinking about. Right? You you brought on an application for a very specific reason. Somebody brought it in because it improved an operational output. It could have improved patient care. How do you ensure like for like as you take one of those pieces away and roll it into something bigger, you know, instead of looking at it from the lens of, well, we got to cut budget. So we got 70 things that do the same thing, cut six of them. Mm. I, as a security practitioner, I get very nervous about that, that use of that tool for that regard, right? So instead of looking at it from what are the operational output and what is the benefit, don't look at it solely from the lens of revenue, right? So how do we save money? I think the CISO has to have a seat at that table, right? Because again, another area when we start to rationalize that that those applications is that we could have the best application in the world that covers all the bases that we need to solve the operational capability and reduce the cost. It could be written on code that's not up to par for what we expect from a security perspective, right? So we're now taking on additional risk, potential breach, potential other liability for what savings at the end of the day? Is it an enhancement to patient safety? Is it a benefit to the revenue? Is it an improvement of patient care and operational aspects? Does it reduce our threat landscape? 
Those are all questions that have to be combined as you go through this process. It can't just be one-sided. So the CISO having a seat at the table for that discussion, imperative, imperative to be a part of that organization. And hopefully it's just a part of the fabric of that organization. I'm seeing a lot of organizations get more culturally sound in this space, asking a lot more questions at, at like the board of director level. So normally you would have been relegated as a CISO to the audit compliance committee once a year to go give two slides because <laughs> they just mm-hmm. don't hear from you. Now you're doing it on a quarterly basis to the board of directors. It still may only be two slides, but they're listening mm-hmm. because they know what the implications are to the brand, to patient safety and care delivery now, if something goes wrong in this oversight of what the CISO has. App rationalization is one piece of that bigger puzzle. Aaron, I'd love to hear your thoughts about application rationalization, uh, the benefits, and what do you think the CISO's role should be in that process? Yeah, no, and, you know, I agree with Rob and Chris's observations, right? You know, app rationalization certainly is a benefit to the organization. It's a benefit to security. You know, to Chris's point, you can't just be financially motivated with it. You really, really, really have to have a seat at the table and be able to articulate what the threat landscape minimization is. You know, you also have to be able to articulate the potential impacts to security posture, right? So we talk about the threat landscape, but, you know, we also have concerns, I guess, about, you know, misuse of the application, right? Which is a threat in itself. But I think a lot of folks forget internal threats. You know, we're so focused on, hey, let's prevent the next ransomware attack, the next exfiltration of data that we don't necessarily think about people snooping in patient records, right? And the systems behind those take a long time to train. So app rationalization has potential impacts for those. It potentially makes it more difficult in some spaces for at least a period of time to say, okay, you know, we're going to be able to detect threats internal to our environment that we might not always be thinking about. And it's important to be able to convey that as well. So, you know, I think having a well-rounded view of sort of what's going on, what the impacts of app rationalization are, and being able to have that conversation even if you know the the CEO or CFO say no 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 we're going to do this because of X Y and Z reasons and those reasons are money, um, you know great right I mean at least they know the risk and they understand what they're getting into from the risk standpoint. Very good, Aaron. I'm going to stick with you on this one. Um, let's talk about the differences between uh, between compliance and being able to demonstrate compliance, which is an interesting difference. And then there's a difference between being able to demonstrate compliance with difficulty or ease. And the idea being that if you're being audited and perhaps things are messier than they should be, you're doing everything right, but maybe your documentation isn't in order. So you've got to have people running around and trying to get all this information together. And you mentioned it could be a whole number of different entities that want it. They may want it in different ways. Um, and that may take you, I've heard the expression, take your eye off the ball when it comes to security. That may take your team's eye off the ball. So obviously the best case scenario is they come in, you've got, you're clean. Everything's there, documentable, you slide it over and you keep doing what you were doing before. But I'm sure many entities are very far from that. So just take me through those dynamics a little bit. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, I think I think there is a difference and and you hit the nail on the head between being in compliance and being able to demonstrate compliance, right? You could be doing everything right, but you could not have it documented. I'd almost argue that those kinds of hygiene type things are telling for a security and an IT organization though, right? 
if you don't have good hygiene, if you're not, you know, the security equivalent of brushing your teeth every day, then you're going to have cavities, right? You're going to have heart problems. You're going to have all of these unforeseen issues that result from not being able to address the underlying thing, which is good hygiene, right? So, you know, ultimately a security organization that documents and documents well, it takes a lot of work. It's very difficult. It goes a very long way, not only to demonstrate that you're acting in a secure way, but that you're doing so competently and that your part, place in the organization is being handled competently, right? Um, so I think, you know, being able to demonstrate compliance with ease is, hey, you know, not only do we do the thing we say we do, but we document it, right? It's auditable, it's repeatable, we're able to communicate it to folks, et cetera. It becomes a lot more difficult to do that when you don't have the documentation in place. And, you know, ultimately when you're in an audit, you have to pull all that documentation together to Novo if you don't have it organized already, right? So it, it becomes a lot more complex. It becomes a lot more of a headache in my opinion, you know, having it documented, having it stored in a specific place becomes a lot easier, right? You know, overall and saves a ton of time overall. Um, you know, and then I think, I don't know that organizations are necessarily in a vulnerable position, um, you know, if, if they're only able to demonstrate compliance with difficulty, right? Certainly they're not in a repeatable place, right? Because like, what are, what are you repeating to, you know, everything you do is probably going to be a little different because it's all anecdotal. Um, but, you know, I think when you have that auditable and repeatable process, then you're able to confidently say, okay, here's what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, where are we not doing things that we ought to be doing? And then you're able to supplement that or at least have a conversation about, hey, how do we supplement this? How do we mitigate it? Or do we just accept these risks? Very good. Rob, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's pretty simple. Um, if you can't demonstrate compliance, you're not compliant. Bottom line. Um, it's like having a sales team um, and not having any sellers. Um, like, or... Or just having an SDR and 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 you're trying to break into enterprise and you don't have anybody who understands how to sell the enterprise. It's it is uh, uh, to me you can't have one without the other. Um, now that said, um, com while compliance is a focus uh, from a security perspective, it, it compliance uh, doth not equal security, right? Um, so we need to satisfy regulators, uh, but it shouldn't be our it shouldn't be our sole focus. Uh, we're we're more <laughs> interested in those things that are highly likely um, that present a that present a risk to the organization. That uh, uh, being compliant isn't isn't necessarily going to have any um, with a set of requirements isn't going to have any impact on um, right. And so, just um, really important to know the difference between what you get from a compliance perspective and who you what master you're serving versus what you're doing when you're building a, a holistic security program. Very good, Chris. So again, I'll, I'll say something that's probably not going to be taken well. <laughs> but <laughs> what's the minimum level of compliance that I'm documenting and proving to you that's good enough? And what do I mean when I say that is that, you know, in some compliance, some security standards, they'll, they'll set a baseline minimum, right? And I'll conform to that baseline minimum. But as the auditor or somebody else comes in who then wants me to demonstrate my compliance, I'm showing you compliance with that baseline minimum. And they may say, it's not good enough for me. <laughs> well, it's good enough for what I'm trying to accomplish here by the letter of the law. 
How is that not good enough for you? And I give you a perfect example. So those of us that develop software, I follow SDLC guidelines, right? I put all the right tools, controlling and training around it. Now I'm being asked additional questions about this process that are asking me to implement additional controls that are well beyond the scope of potential risk for my organization as what we're building. When is it just not good enough anymore, right? So I'm doing everything by the letter of the law that I'm supposed to based upon these mandates. You have to be able to take that auditor as the de facto standard that, hey, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, this is a double-edged sword, right? Because you could always, like the organization, leads up, well, we're following HIPAA security. Well, who gives a shit? <laughs> because it's not good. It's just not good, right? It was written for a very specific point in time. It is yet to evolve. You should have evolved from that. So this is a balancing act at the same time. I should be keeping up with what the industry is demanding, but I shouldn't be demanded upon of what something that's far beyond what the industry should be at at the same time. So it's a little food for thought when we get to this point. Now, I'm going to go back to something that... Um, Aaron said here is that you should have it all documented. If you don't have that written security program, if you don't have the policies and procedures behind the actions that you're doing, you don't do them. That's that's basically what it boils down to. If you can't prove on paper that we say we do something a very specific way and then show how it's done, why are you even bothering at this point in time? Right? You have to have that level of documentation. Centrally stored, managed, process, updated, and readily available for those that are coming in to ask those questions. That's going to be the key takeaway. So, so maybe my vision was kind of silly, which is uh, someone there with a messy office and papers everywhere. And the auditor comes in, they go, well, I have that somewhere. Give me a minute. And they reach, <laughs> you know, <laughs> difficult, difficult to show it's, compliance. The difference yeah. now is that it's not a messy desk. It's a messy Google drive or a Microsoft SharePoint <laughs> site or something else. Well, right? That's in here somewhere. It's we've taken it and we've just digitized it, which has right. kind of made it worse. At least I knew that that policy was <laughs> underneath my coffee cup. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. So we think that's probably probably a rarity out there where someone is really good and in compliance, but difficult time proving it. That's probably not a common entity. I'm, I'm a survey says yes. I'm okay. All right. <laughs> All right. I have an external question from our good friend, industry legend, Bill Spooner. Uh, and it goes into kind of what we're saying, Krista, what you were saying about um, sort of perhaps being asked to attest to things that are outside the scope of what you were told you had to do. Um, of the external entities with cybersecurity oversight roles, which agencies, in your view, truly add value, and I'm ready for the jokes here, versus those whose role seems to just to be to beat on you? Aaron, I'm going to have to go to you first on Perfect. that. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, so I, I I came from government before, you know, I was here at Mainline Health, worked for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, um, both as an attorney and in their security group. So, you know, take my answer with a grain of salt, which is, um, you know, I don't think any government organizations exist simply to beat on you, right? I think government organizations exist to help and they do so in their own misguided ways <laughs> or their own misguided desires, right? And, you know, I think a perfect example of that is um, uh, when the uh, oh, uh, Department of the Treasury came out and said, hey, you know, anybody who pays a ransom to an organization that might be a terrorist organization, um, you know, you have this parade of horribles that you might face. And that happened in a vacuum. Nobody, I think, was really prepared for that, um, at least outside of certain circles. And it's like, okay, well, why would you do that? 
right? Like, why are you making my job as a CISO more complex when I'm in probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me and my organization? And, and now you've just thrown a wrench in how I handle that situation and I'm totally unprepared for it. You know, but I think they did so for good reason, right? Obviously, we don't want to support terrorism. We don't want to fund, you know, physical crime, sex trafficking, what have you. And that's what's happening with all these ransomware payments, right? So, you know, I think the, the lack of coordination, um, you know, is really a problem there. But I, I do think it comes from a good place all around. I don't think anybody's just sitting there going, man, I, I really want to make this person's day bad, right? At least I hope not. Rob, I believe it was President Reagan who said the worst thing you'll ever hear is someone says, I'm here from I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> yeah, I, I, ha I have an experience with one such agency um, and, and I'm not going to make life more difficult for myself. But I will say <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, regulators uh, legislating while they're on site is uh, is a problem. Uh, and there's not a lot of recourse, um, regardless of your documentation, you can you have as a, as a small or large business uh, to to uh, to deal with that. Right. Ultimately, um, you know, it becomes less expensive to comply, uh, even if the demand is not. Uh, a legal order or uh, actual law, right? Because um, you can get um, tripped up with, the government has hundreds of people to my one uh, that can get on the call and beat me for hours uh, <laughs> into <laughs> compliance. <laughs> and uh, and they enjoy doing it. Um, uh, and so that, uh, again, it's, uh, that's, that's been my experience. Um, I think ultimately I do agree, completely agree with Aaron. I don't think it's out of malice. Um, sometimes I think it's out of ignorance. Uh, other times I think it's, uh, you know, they believe that th their rules should have been passed. And so they're going uh, and they weren't and they've adopted, <laughs> they've adopted them anyway. Right. And they're yeah. going to, they're going to hold me to account for something that, uh, that isn't that, that uh, their their peers or the the broader uh, legislative body declined in terms of rulemaking. All right, we are just about out of time. I'm going to give do a little lightning round of final thoughts. Uh, and the idea here, I want you to frame it up. Uh, again, we're talking to CIOs and CISOs at health systems here. Your best piece of advice to make sure they're audit ready, that they have their ducks in a row. Um, Aaron, we're going to start with you. Yeah, keeping it brief, you know, at a bare minimum, look at the benchmarks that you need to meet, right? If you're a healthcare organization, HIPAA literally gives you a checklist. And I know, you know, just adhering to a checklist isn't best practice, but at a bare minimum, you ought to be doing that. And there are going to be a few. If you're a health system, if you're a healthcare provider, if you're a vendor uh, who wants to get into health, etc. I mean, just, just look at the checklists and make sure you're taking all the boxes. Chris, your final thought? Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on that. On top of the checklists, visibility into all those checklists that are required and mapping them back to one another. Don't, don't recreate work for yourself. If you're checking the box on one thing because you have to, it's probably a box someplace else that you need to check. Document that, point them back to one of those. So really get that roadmap for how you're dealing with compliance across the vast landscape of compliance mandates that are out there. Excellent. Rob, we'll give you the last word. Absolutely agree with uh, both those approaches. And I would just say uh, you cannot protect what you can't see, right? Inventory, uh, 
asset inventory is important. We've struggled with it in uh, in corporate IT for years on the desktop side. Um, the threats have moved to the data. Um, so if you're if you're after these things um, and you're really wanting to protect um, your organization and your patient populations, um, you you, you got to know what you have and, and where it's at risk. Perfect. All right. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming panels. I want to thank our tremendous panel, Aaron Weissman, Rob Marty, and Chris Logan. I want to thank Sensinet and Taosite for making the event possible and you for attending. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you, Thank you very much. much.